bandwidth for this week's episode of Book Guys is brought to you by hollowbooks.com, where they create custom-made books where you can hide just about anything. You choose the book, they do the rest. It's the Book Guys show as usual. My name is Paul Alves, joined as always by my friend Craig Damlow all the way in Seattle. How are you, sir? Sunny, sunny Seattle, and I'm good. Yeah, and we got to change that ad at the top because uh, Sir Jimmy owes us some uh, bandwidth money. Yes. I'm just saying. Uh, and, and you know, Craig, sometimes uh, uh, we get into this rut where we have all these male uh, guests come on and the, the place really just starts to smell like uh, stinky, I don't know, gym socks. <laughs> no, so that we have to clean up once in a while and, and have a lady on and that lady today is the one and only susan i weinstein how are you my dear i'm just fine today i'm reasonable okay rational fine <laughs> that's great that's exactly who we're looking for <laughs> I, I i think we managed to pick up all the sweaty socks i think we're okay uh we did some febreze and all that so uh welcome aboard okay thank you I guess we'll start right off. I'm not going to play science fiction. I'm going to do this one. Fiction, fiction, fiction. Because just so much of your new book is is already in progress. (laughs) And of course, the new book is Paradise Gardens, out now by Pelicanesis, I believe. And Susan, tell us a little bit about uh, Paradise Gardens. Just give us a little, uh, the the quick, you know, the, the, the elevator pitch. Okay, Paradise Gardens takes place in 2250, and it also takes place on 3011 Underground. This is the story of the United Business Estates, the UBA, um, which after the government has dissolved and the world has become safe for business, there are feudal estates, and the UBA, the United Business Estates, is the government of the earth. And in this, this book, at that time, the world is polluted. They have to go underground. So the last great real estate project, Paradise Gardens, is being sold to the surviving corporations who are all going to move and leave the people behind who are unconnected. These are the people outside of the corporate estates. And so there is a big, um, cl- there is a big fight between the people who are on the surface the rebels within the corporate business estates, and the information pirates, people who are actually kind of surfing both worlds. So that's that's kind of where we are. I guess it's like um, Philip K. Dick meets... Um, <laughs> I mean, it has like a few genres here. People have cons- talked about it being more similar to Brave New World, um, to Huxley's book, but it has a lot of fairly wacko things in it too. <laughs> I, I'm really, so really enjoying this because it, it presses a lot of my buttons. Uh, I like to straddle sometimes the line between left wing and right wing politically, and and I, I know that you're, uh, you're. I, I I believe that you do. Uh, you know, swing a little bit more to the left side than to the right. But but I would say that yes. But, but this, this cautionary <laughs> tale almost borders on. Uh, what what uh, uh, like right wing uh, Alex Jones uh, warns about this total technocratic uh, control, you know, corporate state. I, I love that it straddles all these lines, and and any anyone of any political spectrum would enjoy it. I believe. Yeah, I th- I think that that's actually a point because it does look at the ideology of the right. I mean, there are fascist nihilist gangs. 
Um, and of course, but the heroes in this book pretty much are the people who are rebelling against this total control of the system, um, where they employees are actually produced by human resources to fill slots. <laughs> well, which so which I mean, Susan, I mean, uh, I mean, a lot of that happens today. I mean, with the you know education system, uh, of course, there's always you know people are guided on certain paths, right? Oh, I mean, people are guided on certain paths, but they still are given an illusion that if they do the route, if they go through college, if they go through that major, if they make that right connection, that they're going to be safe. They'll be in the system. So there is a certain amount of free choice within that, but it's becoming more and more tight. You can't really take a year off and go somewhere or do something different because there aren't a lot of options. I think it is narrowing. I like, I like one of the, the things in the book is that uh, people are, of course, not, not only guided by uh, the government, but they actually have like personal trainers for their mind. So what do you call them? Psych- psycho Psychonauts? Or? Oh, the psychologicians. Psychologicians. <laughs> Tell us a bit about those. Those are great. Yeah, because I I guess what it is is that the psychologicians are actually working with a huge database, and this database is actually guiding the civilization by being able to anticipate various end products of certain courses of action so that they are guiding their individuals, but their individuals also have a set route that they have to kind of work like a ship's captain and see how the destiny lines are unfolding. So that there's several levels to the world. There's the life of the employee, then there's the psychologicians who are working with the destiny lines. Right. And and as I was reading and, and seeing the role of the psychologicians, I, I was thinking, we, we kind of already have some and they're on our TVs at night, <laughs> you know, telling us how to think. Well, yeah, and if you think about it, I mean, one of the the inventions here that I got a little flipped out about recently is that there are helmets that are used to um, not just, they retrain people's experiences so that they fit along lines that make them happier. And they're used by corporations in order to keep people in line, but the thing about them is they're very similar to what Musk is working with, with interfaces with brains where they're, they're figuring out it's beyond the 3D glasses. There's actually interfaces that they'll be able to use to give people certain types of powers outside of normal human perception. But how they're going to be used and who will use them for what is really up for grabs. Yeah, and, and if you've ever read a terms of service for a product sold by Musk or, or Zuckerberg at <laughs> Facebook, I mean, th- these are the last people you want to have access to your thoughts. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> Well, yeah, and I mean, they're going to have these interfaces out there. It's EM, I think it's called EMI or something, but they're working on this now, and he's not the only one. So that uh, that is very, very similar to how the brain helmet um, is used in this book, and it's used by the psychologicians who are the trainers. And the thing about it is there's several layers that people are living in. They're living in what they have as an everyday layer, but they don't realize, like if you're a superior corporate employee, there are certain neighborhoods you're living in, it seems like our normal reality, except that it's underground or it's it's a perk for certain kinds of people to be able to live that way. So that it's, um, it has our, I, I guess what I'm saying is it has our particular classes, 
but they're on a different level because there's several different layers to things. Is that confusing? <laughs> I'm right with you. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm kind of scaring myself, but I'm following along. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. And I have a, I have a question on that. Your, your book has a lot of depth and a lot of, you know, technology changes. How, how did you keep track of all of that as you were putting the book together? Well, this was a very complicated book. I mean, I don't think I would ever write anything like this again. It was, <laughs> it was done on and off over a period of 10 years. And there were layers to the book that came together where I didn't really have the skill to tell the story until a certain period of time where it began to come together. Hmm. So I guess what I'm saying is I dreamt a lot of this. <laughs> I, dreamt it, I dreamt it before it happened because um, it began in the 80s, this book. And at that time, I was I first I first saw certain things. In other words, there was no internet. I had internet pirates who had bulletin boards who were looking to make to preserve real facts, real truth, real information from parking tickets, whatever it was. They were they were preserving this. Um, there was a the tackle in the World Trade Center. This was done before that happened. So I guess what I'm saying is that when you start thinking about things like this, you're kind of you kind of it comes together and it's subliminal. And then you go back and you have to look at it and make sure that the plot is going together. Make sure that the details make sense. So if this book came subliminally first. Then I would go back and edit it. I go back and work on it. And I also had um, an editor, editor I worked with um, a year or so before I really got started figuring out, sending it out, what I wanted to do with it. Now, like, like most uh, end of the world tales, and of course, your book starts uh, after the you know great damage to our current society has been done. Uh, two time frames, of course. One when they're trying to set up Paradise Gardens already in the middle of a... Uh, kind of messed up world and one after paradise gardens uh, already exists but uh w w would you consider this to be like a globalist corporate porn <laughs> is this is this the ultimate corporate uh fantasy well i guess that's the way i see it i mean when i started this book i was actually working for a place called the wall street transcript and the whole newspaper was dedicated to international corporations <laughs> <laughs> and it was all about stocks. It was all about brands and it was all global. And so I think what inspired a lot of this was seeing that reality of this is a this is the ultimate corporate fantasy is that you really would have a feudal state and you would you would talk to other feudal states and you'd be able to control it for your profit and to perpetuate your leaders. Um, and it's not unlike, I mean, I know we don't talk about politics in the show, but I mean, we do have a president in the United States who is a corporate brand who is promulgating his brands and who is using political offices to do that and bonding with other regions who have a similar objective. So in other words, if you take the private sector and you take the public sector and they no longer exist, they're melded, you have something like Paradise Gardens. Yeah, and I I think actually on on both sides of the aisle, uh, you know, in both our countries, uh, I I can say the same for all of them. <laughs> I hate to be sound so pessimistic, but uh, I see a lot from both sides. And I just want to clarify from what I said earlier that uh, 
uh, globalist corporate porn. I don't mean globalism like as in Star Trek globalism where everyone gets along and, you know, we don't need borders <laughs> anymore and everything's great. No, 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 no. I, I'm for that kind of globalism. No, no, no. I, I mean the one where corporations literally take over the world, <laughs> much yeah, like well, in your I mean, story. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing, because if you see what's going on, I mean, I'm I'm looking at it from a distance from the 80s to now. And I see how things have narrowed. I mean, everything seems to be co-opted. Creativity is co-opted. Everything is made into um, a specific thing to sell products. I mean, it's really gotten extreme. And now the ultimate thing of applying that to government is really the last bastion because we used to have notions that there's a public sector you know, the public sector was to serve people. And then there's the private sector, which was business. And the whole foundation of society as we know it is based on those things being separate and having different objectives. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't understand how you can possibly um, consider running a government that is not going to be corrupt unless you um, unless you have a notion of the public sector, Right. Right. Well, I, I don't think anyone that, uh, you know, was anti-corporate could survive too long in any office on earth right now. They'd probably get shot. That That's how much influence they have. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, it, it's a weird thing because there is subversion in various areas, which I find really interesting that I never could have thought of. I mean, like there's online, there's a group called Sleeping Giants. Do you know those people? Uh, sleep? No. No. Well, what what they do is really amazing because they are advertising guys, and they're within the system. But what they've done is they have they have zeroed in on hate speech, so they've been able to pinpoint for every company that's every company every corporation does media buys. They don't even know what they're buying; they just buy this stuff. Right. So anyone who is sponsoring Bright Sparts gets told they're sponsoring Breitbart's and so that they and it's posted and everyone knows it so that they have now managed to bring in line a huge number of companies who don't want to be known or and most of a lot of them didn't even know that they were paying for ads for hate speech and so sleeping giants has actually been able to start to do ethics and reform ethics within business yeah, but I, you know, one person's hate speech is another person's free speech. So, um, well, I, I think that's actually part of the problem: is corporations throwing their weight around and telling people what they can and can't say. Well, but I mean, I know you're being contrarian. <laughs> but, <laughs> I try. I mean, but I mean, I'm talking about you know the kind of stuff that they, the kind of stuff that really does cause um, a tremendous amount of violence and destruction. Uh, and it does, you know, you can't, hate, hate speech can't be normalized. I don't think there's, I don't think hate speech is free speech. There's a line. And if you want to know the line, there's the Southern Poverty Law Center who had to, were the first people that had to define that line when they were dealing with the Klan. And they were able to do that after a lynching. Um, and what it is, the line is very, very interesting, the judicial line. If you are a person who are able to incite other people through the speech you make, the values in that speech, and you can show that after hearing it, those people went out and killed someone or lynched someone, then you are as responsible as it, or as, as if you committed the crime. Oh, we got to lock up most of these talking heads on TV at this point then. <laughs> Just well, most of them. <laughs> I'm saying they were able to, Morris Dees did this. 
Now, no, bring, bringing it back to your book, uh, uh, rather than, uh, you know, the, uh, whatever, the Breitbarts and the, uh, you know, Anderson Coopers of the world, uh, you know, although they have sway with what they say, uh, in your book, the uh, the people at night or, or on their scheduled appointments must meet with their psychologist. Psychologician, it's hard to say. Um, and, and uh, you know, the, the, the psychologician basically corrects their behavior and guides them in, in their, their proper corporate path. Uh, how'd you come up with that? Well, the whole thing with, it's a combination of HR people and psych, psychologists. And if you've ever dealt with business psychologists in a corporate environment or a psychologist in a, you know, in, a, in other kinds of environments, it's not that I'm anti-psychologist, it's just that the usage of it. And I guess what I was thinking of is to give you an example. Um, when companies started to take, um, take all their, their things overseas, their operations overseas, what I found really interesting is that in another era, all those displaced people would have been given um, retraining, you know, job retraining. That's right. why you have all these co-workers. Around. I mean, no one had an obligation, not the corporations nor the government, to retrain any of these people. What they did offer them, though, was psychological counseling. And what was interesting about that counseling, and I found a little insidious, is that the objective of the counseling was to make a person feel that it was totally up to them that they had the resources, that they could turn their life around, and that all politics didn't exist. It was all personal. And it's the same type of thing of, of um, saying you don't need a union and getting rid of unions. I mean, there's a certain kind of business function to that type of psychology because it's much cheaper to have counselors offer counseling than to retrain people. Right. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Paradise Gardens. I'm just looking at. I'm looking at the cover here, and and, uh, and, and I'm a big uh, uh, opponent of the the phrase uh, "Don't judge a book by its cover." I I say do judge a book by its cover, because uh, <laughs> then you see how much effort the uh, although the the writer may not be an artist, uh, you see how much effort they put in and, and pride in their work. And this is a wonderful cover, um, one of the nicest covers I've seen in a while. Uh, it looks like a collage type illustration. I'll, I'll put a link up in the show notes. Um, who who created that? Ah, well, Kathy Saxa, Kathy Saxa-Midlowski, has been an award-winning designer, and she used to do Cornell-type boxes. She's a wonderful artist, and she happens to have been my roommate and my one of my best friends for years, and she knew about this book for a long time. And so she did do this, this book cover for me. She also did The Anarchist Girlfriend, but she wanted to show the layers that everybody was living in a various, you know, there were various layers behind layers mm -hmm. to existence. There's the official one. There's the one that the destiny that's being, that's being worked out that may, may look different. And so what she did with this cover is she wanted to show those, those things. And she got the feeling of the book, I think in a really beautiful way. Um, so she did that front cover and then Mark, the publisher actually, when he was working on the back cover, flipped the images and and took up the burning theme. So I think that that what he did with the back cover was really interesting. Uh, I think when when Netflix picks this up as a series, I think they got to use that collage as a basis for the intro. Well, so. if that ever happened, that would be a great thing. I don't know <laughs> that that would happen, but that would be really a lot of fun. I mean, I'm hoping that 
at that we will we will evolve past this particular scenario and so like brave new world and like huxley's book it'll be something that people will find interesting to look at in retrospect <laughs> well you know uh, i i hate to bring it to this but you know it's almost like b back to right to bear arms as a last you know uh resort to prevent this kind of thing but uh, you don't need uh, guns i mean Folks, matches, matches and gasoline. <laughs> There's, at some point, humanity always wants to be free. And when we find ourselves in these kind of situations, uh, time and time again, you'll see people getting dragged out of their palaces. <laughs> well, that's that's what I really, I, I think that there is that thing. I think you have it. I mean, because if you look at, you know, let them eat cake, and then you look at um, some of the statements that we've had from the White House. Right. I mean, they're getting pretty parallel. <laughs> and yeah. I guess there will be that point. The question is, um, how will it be dealt with in our society? I mean, it's. I think people are still in shock. I mean, and, modern day politicians have kind of got a way around this, where, where they've set up, you know, false dichotomies and 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 you know, left wing, right wing. We drag George Bush out of office, then here comes uh, Obama. He does things we don't like. We drag him out of office, then here comes Donald Trump. We're going to drag him out of office, and then and they just sort of keep passing the ball back and forth. At some point, we got to figure out that these guys are working in tandem. <laughs> You think they're working in tandem? Not, not so much. They're not. not they're not together, but for sure they're they're working in tandem uh, for the corporations that they all answer to. Yes, well, that's which, for sure. I mean, like a congressman spend what fifty percent of their time trying to you know get money out of uh, donors. Right, and that's and that's that is the problem. Not to go too political, but we've got to get them back to actually treating individuals like individuals and talking to individuals and i think that's a kind of an important part in your book is rather than adjusting the workers we need the corporations to adjust to the workers well i think that would be a utopian society that would really that's almost like thomas more interpreted and i think that's a beautiful concept i'd like to see that happen um, I'm trying to think when in history that's been done I and mean, where it's really worked. I mean, for periods of times, there were communes. I don't mean like the Paris commune, but I mean, there were. <laughs> we're not talking about that one. But, I mean, there have been um, efforts to do that. Um, you're talking about something where the co government or the corporations would actually be thinking of the public good. And operating with that oh, premise and at least trying to do that. I mean, the enlightened, you're talking about almost like an enlightened corporate state, like Athens or something. But we'd have an Athens corporation, right? Yeah. Well, right. If, if, if you actually kind of think, and this is a, you know, maybe a, a, a poor example of where we're at today. But if you look at China and the way China does business, the, the way the corporations operate today it's not on what's my return today. It's what's my return in, you know, 20 years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. And it's, it's the Native American uh, thought process of seventh generation. What we're doing today, how is it going to affect the seventh generation? And we've gotten caught up in the 24-hour news cycle, the what's my return on the stock market today attitude that leads... Like you said, it, it's 
you know, you saw it coming in the 80s for sure, and it leads in your book to finally the corporations are going to run everything, and it's it's not do we, how do we adjust to the individuals? How do we adjust the individual to match what the corporation needs? Right, the individuals are co-opted. They're produced for what the corporation needs. It's futile. Right. Feudal society had peasants, and they used to actually have quite a lot to say over the children and what children were born because they owned those children. Right, <laughs> and it's 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 funny because you you talk about it as being part of HR or a combination of HR and psychology, and it's if you look back at Taylorism, the the original founder of HR, that is exactly what he did. He worked in a, um, a gravel pit in New York and Brooklyn, and he watched people shovel and gave them different shovels timed how much they could do then he measured how much they picked up with each shovel and it was literally hr was literally human resource management not the hr of today of hiring people and making them feel better it was literally how can we make people more efficient at their jobs not about how can we make people happy at their jobs. No, no, I mean, yeah, because my estate, it's all, it's all genetic. It's genetic manipulation and it's brain manipulation. I mean, right. It's the, it's the natural advancement of that tailor in Taylorism of how do we, you know, adjusting the work to the people. Now you've naturally gone ahead and said, okay, how can the corporation adjust the person to the work? But I mean, that's really interesting that that guy was doing that. I'm very, I'm very surprised. But I mean, the utopian idea. I mean, if we get back to that for a second, I mean, I, I think the idea of the Athenian state and the Spartan states, I, I think that that's played out again and again, and we have that kind of paradigm going on now where you have the Spartans who feel that if you can't bootstrap yourself, you should die. You don't have medical care. And then you have the Athenians who have this kind of idealized freedom. And I think that if you had a state where you had an enlightened corporate state, and if you thought about it in terms of Athenian ideals of truth and beauty, and I mean, Athens had its problems also, but you come very close to Thomas More's thing. I mean, do you remember his utopia where people had, there was, they were farmers or they were tradespeople, but everything they did was geared for them and for the greater good so that they were, they were doing the next generation and they were doing the overall for God's such and such. They weren't quite as far seeing as the Chinese, but I think that that could work if it would evolve. The question is, the Chinese, of course, have messed up with five-year plans that had nothing to do with reality, right? Yeah. I mean, we do we do have that, <laughs> right, do have that right. problem with Absolutely. the Chinese. And the American Indians also had issues because they would have too much warfare to be able to between tribes. Well, so, I think I, mean, I think the Greek and 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 the Native Americans, uh, you know, had great societies, great models for society that if you project them forward a thousand years, they'd be fantastic. But one thing they have in common is they don't survive contact with an, a different tribe of people with, you know, pointier well, sticks. Spartans always get them, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's always a war <laughs> comes down the Spart- to. Well, the Spartans are into hardship as character. So it's, they have a different viewpoint. Um, 
but I would like I would like Thomas More's because it's agrarian and it's crafts oriented. And it seems that many of the colonies that have worked were like that. They had a democratic thing. They did not have leaders. They had spokespeople. And they did actually share all their goods and services communally. And their money was used to to purchase things outside and to purchase land. I mean, there ha- America has, I, mean, I don't know about Canada, but America has a history of utopian experiments. Um, they're really quite quite interesting i mean the shakers the shakers had a great one too except they were kind of odd because you know they weren't into procreating i was gonna say they were they were a self-limiting movement slight right, flaw they, slight flaw in their uh, uh plan they believed there. that work was aesthetic and that essentially it should be i mean it's it's from a good and there's a tradition but they they also had a different value to it but you're right they had a self-limiting issue <laughs> Uh, I, I know the psychologicians on your American TV every night, uh, they tell you that uh, the Canadian healthcare system is terrible and people die and all this, but, you know, people die regardless. Uh, I, that's one thing I know that most Canadians would uh, drag you out of uh, Parliament Hill and, and beat you senseless if you tried to even, you know, mention that you wanted to change our system. And, and to, you know, I'm going to make a prediction right here on the, the on the show, Craig. He thought it was great. He said that they had a wonderful system and we don't. At one point, uh, uh, Trump was a big supporter, and now, he's, since this election, uh, he's uh, come out against uh, single-payer. But, but I'm, I'm going I'm to make the prediction here, Craig. Uh, Trump care designed to fail. It may not even pass through the next two processes it has to go through to become law, and uh, next government's going to be liberal and, sorry, you call it democratic, Democrats, and they're going to bring in single-payer. Well, do you think so? I mean, I think it's going to be state by state. There's going to be some single payer going on because like certain states, Obamacare has totally failed. Like uh, Pennsylvania is one that is purple state because the markets dropped into nothing um, because of a lot of reasons. Mm -hmm. And they may actually go single payer. I mean, there's a bunch of places that may. I mean, I thought it was funny that Trump told the Australian premier that he had the best one in the world and they have single pay. Yeah. Now, as you can see, folks, this is a book that can bring about a lot of conversation. Um, an interesting end of the world. One of my favorites, uh, genres period <laughs> <laughs> post end we'll, of the we'll world. Call it... Sorry. Go, go ahead. Craig. I said, we, we can, we can call it timeless, right? You wrote it or started it in the eighties. Yep. about the environment it's now more applicable today it'll probably be just as applicable in 30 or 40 years uh i you know it, it's kind of you know to to draw the parallel 1984 it doesn't really matter what year you live in you can always draw analogies to 1984 and i think your book will hold up the same way because i don't think we'll ever reach that utopia we'll always have an influence from one side or another that is going to uh, affect how everyone views the world. Well, I think, I think that's, that's right. I mean, I kind of, I like that idea. I thank you for that concept. Um, Cause the 2250s, it seems to me that for the environment, I found it interesting that um, they were saying that by 2235, that it would be possible to actually turn the climate around there's a couple plans that are spearing that. <laughs> hmm. And 2250 does seem to have a ring to it about something decisive that will happen then. I'm not sure what. 
Uh, hopefully yeah, we can year. Great steer year. all those asteroids <laughs> away from us uh, between now and then. Hopefully yeah, we can... I don't know that we'll be around, but, you know, <laughs> but I guess, you know, I'd like to also say that one of the things about this book that I think is very hopeful is that despite the fact that people are genetically bred and that their lives are decided following destiny lines, um, that they actually can't uh, somehow control human um, potential, which was one of the things that evolved out of this. I mean, people have abilities and they aren't really superior or average, no matter how they are, they are slotted or bred. Um, and that they can't really, they can't really control those things. People still have that will once they realize it and awaken in the book. There is hope. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely hope. And I also think that Michael is somebody who's been inside and outside of the system. He is kind of an aristocrat of sorts, but he also is an artist of sorts because he goes he goes through cultures and he also looks at the older cultures and is able to see what operates through time. I mean, I, th I think there are people who are gifted in certain ways and that they are not entirely repressed. I, th I think Huxley went too far on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, most of Huxley's characters were a little bit over medicated in that one, but <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's true. I don't think medication here isn't isn't the the thing as much as the brainwaves, and uh, and sex is interesting in this book. I mean, that it is a very controlled. It's very controlled, but it's also um, something that comes out in different ways. Rebellion and sex seem to be linked. Absolutely. So I think that, I think maybe it always is a little bit, right? <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And of course, uh, the, you know, one of the, the best ways to get rid of uh, procedures and laws that uh, are very unpopular is to enforce them. And we, can, we see a little bit of that in Paradise Gardens where, uh, you know, it's such a rigid control over the human, you know, mind and spirit that at some point, you know, people just want to rebel against it. <laughs> Well, what did you think about the racism? I mean, that to me was something that was very disturbing. You know, the segregation of the races for medical reasons. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I do think that there, the racial segregation thing is something that, you know, pops up no matter how people try to to push the rainbow concept. I mean, that's it just seems that there's always this underside of what we've got in our utopian thought. <laughs> yeah. It it always I always boggle my mind that there were still uh, white and black people in Star Trek. You, you would think that by then, you know, we would have intermingled so much that everyone would be, you know, one homogenous color. It would be like Brazil, would be like Brazil, right? <coughs> I meant like Brazil, Brazil the country, not the movie, right? <laughs> well, but, you know, but even that Brazil's an interesting country that it's it's still highly divided in in the colors um that you see going from the inlands out to the, uh, to the sea. Right. Well, yeah. uh, Susan, where can folks find paradise gardens? Where can they go download it or purchase it or have it mailed to their office? 
Oh, well, I mean, there's a couple ways. They could go directly to the publisher, www.pelicanesis.com. It is available at Barnes & Noble at small press distributors. It is available at Amazon, though. Like many small presses, we all know that Amazon uh, takes 60% of every sale. (laughs) 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 which is the most expensive, you know, so that, um, you know, we, of course, prefer going directly to the publisher, to www.pelicanesis.com. But if you've got your Amazon, you know, Prime or whatever, you probably just want to do it that way. And I'm happy anyone buys it. That's great to me. (laughs) (laughs) Well said. Well said. Thank you. Always a pleasure, Susan. Thank you so much for uh, uh, also sending us. Thank you for having me here. Oh, it's always a pleasure having you, for sure. And thank you for sending all uh, those lovely writers who have been uh, submitting short stories for me to put into that machine that I have in the basement. Uh, you can check that out on iTunes as well, Short Story Machine on iTunes. Uh, I think it sounds like a lot of fun, that whole short story machine. Uh, you know what? When you're in its presence, it's a little bit disconcerting. You mean because there's like so much to do? No, I, just the machine. It, it, I, I swear, I, I replaced some screws on it last week because they, they were all rusty. <laughs> and I went back down there today and the screws are rusty again. It's weird. How did that happen? I, I don't know. <laughs> so it's outside of time, right? Oh, that's a great concept. Hmm, might have to work an experiment on that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Susan. Thanks, Craig. Thank I know you. Craig's got a, a hard out as well. So uh, we'll see you later, Craig. Okay, thank you, Craig. I think I think Craig may have dropped off. Thank you, Skype. Oh, thank okay. you, Microsoft. <laughs> no, no, sorry, I hit the wrong button. Yes, no, okay. thank you. I got to go, but yes, yeah, thank you, Susan, for being on, and I hope uh, people go pick up your book and uh, learn from it. Well, and I thank you for having like read it and actually and liked it and appreciated it so much. Paradise Gardens, Susan I. Weinstein, on shelves Bye-bye. now. <laughs> Thanks so much, Susan. Thank you. adventures in audio time and space, visit us online at amaudiomedia.com. Hi, this is Bernard Robichaud. I play Cyrus on the Trailer Park Boys, and you're listening to The Book Guys. Book Guys. And we're back. I'm back, because uh, Craig had to go deal with some uh, 
mural-related uh, malarkey with his neighbors. I think that's why he had to leave. Anyways, we are joined once again, a return guest, the one and only Seth Harwood. How are you, sir? I'm good. Thank you very much for having me on. It's a hey, pleasure to be here. It's been a long time, and I've, I've had a little bit of Jack Palms withdrawal, and uh, when I heard that uh, there was a, a new one in the works on its way, uh, I got really excited, man. <laughs> oh, I like to hear that. I can't new wait. in the queue. Yeah, that's awesome. We should all get really excited. I've been excited. Absolutely, absolutely. You want to tell us a little bit about, uh, g- give us the elevator pitch on uh, on the new one. I don't want to spoil anything. Um, so this new one is called The Maltese Jordans. And basically, we pick up Jack Palms a little later on in his life. He's taken to bounty hunting, and he gets sent on a bounty to follow this guy who embezzled a big chunk of money from these accountants in San Francisco. Turns out he ends up running to Kauai, Hawaii, and uh, he winds up being after this pair of fabled, mythical, legendary Michael Jordan sneakers. And, and you know, anyone who's hung around anyone under 20 knows that, uh, you know, the, having the right air Jordans is, is, is a big thing for the youths. It's a big thing. <laughs> it's and huge. it's so amazing to me because when I was under 20, this was a really big thing. And it's like the same sneakers that these kids are. Yeah. I mean, so basically like the kids are so excited to have the sneakers that I was wishing I could have when I was their age. And now it's like all come full circle. It's amazing. It's just a really fascinating world to me. The sneakerhead world, the, the sneakers now that the kids are wearing are the same ones that, that I wanted to wear when I was in high school and college, and now they're re-releasing them all the time, and kids are going crazy over them. Same ones, Michael Jordan, throwbacks, retro. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of these sneakers are worth a lot of money. I mean, there's rare ones like this. Like I, like, there's like a certain uh, models of the Jordans that were only made, like they only made like five baby shoe copies of it, and they're worth like, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, uh, and I'm just I'm wondering, how much does the... Uh, the mythical pair in your uh, in your new novel what's that worth well so um the most expensive ones that i've seen in real life are um there was one pair of jordan sneakers that he wore for this uh super awesome playoff finals game basically a finals game against the jazz that was known as the flu game right that was where he had the flu and after the game, he gave the sneakers to this guy who um, worked in the locker room. And years later, that guy auctioned the shoes off. And he got about, you know, this just happened a couple of years ago. So this was, you know, 20, 20 years after the fact of the flu game, these sneakers went for almost $100,000. Wow. Which is not that much considering that they're game-worn Jordan sneakers and, you know, they're autographed. He wore right. them for it's, this. Right, it's the, more the story am- than the actual game. But then, so then you have these Kanye West shoes, the Red Octobers, that some guy had at a conference. This There was a story in the New York Times that this kid from New Jersey had these Kanye West Red Octobers. And these basically, just like out of the box, go for 
probably $10,000 now just because they came out in a really limited edition. And then Kanye like quit Nike right after that. Um, so the, someone offered this kid 95000 for his pair of signed Red Octobers, and the kid turned it down. Man, you know, and, and here I am putting wax on my Doc Martens so they'll last me another year. No way. You know? <laughs> well, this kid's never wearing those Red Octobers. <laughs> no he kidding. in a big glass case. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so uh, Jack Palms is back. Uh, exciting. I see that you're uh, joining the uh, the value for value model, the Patreon. Uh, tell us a bit about that and your experience with that. Can I tell you more about the Jordans first? Oh, sure. Sure. I love talking about the Jordans. So you were asking like how much those are worth. Right, right. And so so the Maltese Jordans is this pair that Michael Jordan might have worn. There was a time when Jordan had to quit basketball for a while. And if you dig into the conspiracy theorists and annals of NBA history, it's possible that after the Pete Rose thing blew up in baseball, they were really worried that Jordan's gambling was going to blow up in the NBA. Right. So he might have gotten pushed out of the NBA for that period. He made some questionable comments when he was retiring for the first time that led some people to believe that David Stern had pushed him out of the league because of the gambling thing. And so when he comes back into the league, there's a period where he plays this one golf game. We don't know who he played with, but the golf game debt that Jordan had to repay after the bets from it was so big that he he goes over to, to Saudi Arabia and plays a basketball game for the king, a pickup game, and gives the king a pair of sneakers after the game is over. And so now it's like 20 years later, these sneakers supposedly might have surfaced and all these people are trying to figure out if they're real or not or if they actually exist. And it turns out that they go for a huge amount of money. Wow. Okay, because when I heard the trailer, I thought, well, this is very creative. This is amazing. I had no idea that there was even a, like a, a, a fragment of, of fact in that. There's a fragment. That's amazing. exactly one fragment. One fragment, not not yeah. one point five. No, uh, not one point five. Not a whole piece, a particle. <laughs> and and of course, a fragment of truth. Are you going to be narrating these as well yourself for the audio version? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, looking I forward to am, that. I have come to the conclusion that I am the best audio narrator for my books in the world. You, you know, uh, you, you say you say that. I know you're 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 a little self-deprecating humor there, but. Uh, you are definitely one of the authors that I say should narrate uh, uh, their own work. <laughs> you know, of course, the opposite end of the spectrum is Stephen King, who should always hire uh, other people to narrate his work. But well, the guy, it turns out that the last book that I released, um, my publisher paid people to record it. And the guy that they got to record it is kind of famous. He was the guy that did The Martian. Yes. Um, and his name is R.C. Bream or something like that. I'm totally butchering his name. I'll Google it and figure it out. But he's kind of famous. And I thought he did an okay. That book was interesting because it had two, it had a male narrator and a female narrator. So they went back and forth and they actually had a man and a woman to do it. So that was good. Um, but yeah, I'm not a big fan of, of the, you know, male narrator doing falsetto. But I know, you know, in a single reader, you have no choice. But 
Uh, I do well, like no, this one was man and woman, and yeah. I, I stand by my terrible falsettos for my female <laughs> characters. I feel like that's a must. Hey Seth, uh, I think it's about time. We're gonna play the the trailer for uh, for Jordans. Let's yeah. Here we go. I should mention before you yeah. get into it that the narrate the trailer is recorded. It's not my voice, which you'll know quickly. Is Mark Yoshimoto Nemkov, who I'm sure you remember and others remember from the early podcast days of Number One with a Bullet and several other great titles. Let's check it out. You're listening to Seth Harwood. Subscribe today at Patreon.com/slash Seth Harwood. What if Michael Jordan played one secret pickup game in summer 1996 to pay off a debt so big it would get him banned from the NBA for life? What if that game was played on a private court in Malta and Jordan's parting gift for the king was a jewel-encrusted pair of Jordan 11s, a pair of kicks so special and rare that they could be worth millions if they actually exist? Follow Jack Palms on a hunt from San Francisco to Hawaii and back across the country to New York City as he tracks the only person who knows the truth about these sneakers, a felon who just skipped his bond to chase them. The mythical pair of sneakers that can only go by one name. In the vein of Elmore Leonard and Carl Hyacin, Seth Harwood presents his next novel, the Maltese Jordans. Subscribe today at patreon.com slash Seth Harwood. Yeah, I like that uh, there's some uh, mad villain back again. Just love the whole soundtrack to the Jack Palm series. Thanks. Actually, that's uh, it's a clip from Gangstar at the beginning that yep. does kind of the superhero music, and then at the end of that is a clip from The Roots. Ah, okay. I thought I always thought that Gangstar one uh, that sounds a lot like the uh, the Mad Villain, uh, the the breakbeat from the Mad Villain one. There's <laughs> a lot of Mad Villain on all all the original Jack Palms books were um, or the original podcasts were all Mad Villain in terms of the the theme music. But then that Stinger thing is taken from uh, a Gangstar track. It's just kind of like a weird 60-second filler track in between some other nice. songs on their um, Hard to Earn album. Sorry, Daily Operation. I don't know what I was thinking. But, um, yeah, so it's just pulled off of that. And it gives me, it gives me sort of like a Spider-Man uh, yeah. take back the streets kind of vibe. Yeah, great vibe, great street vibe. Jack Palms always yeah. getting himself in trouble. You know, it's hard to feel sorry for him sometimes because, you know, he's always going in the wrong place and, you know, always getting Not in trouble. Not this time. This time he's on the up and up, <laughs> I think. I think he's on the up and up. Like, I think that if you look at the first couple of books, he's making a lot of questionable decisions. And I think here in this one, he make. I think he's pretty solid. He's on solid ground for the most part. He's just trying to do his job, like get this dude who's going after the Maltese Jordans. He's grown as a character. He might have grown a little bit, yeah. despite himself. But he still gets into <laughs> some shenanigans. But And he chases the girls. 
but um yeah yeah don't, don't have him grow up too too much i mean we don't want like yeah. you know like the, the holden caulfield uh sequel we don't want him like we don't i don't, I don't want to see him with grandkids good point <laughs> or even kids yeah i've got him um there's a secret it's funny like over the years i've written some things that sort of wind up in the vault and um this book actually was in the vault for a couple of years it was written before i finished everyone pays and i just kind of had it in a drawer because i wanted to work on um a different kind of book with thomas and mercer who, who published the last couple of books for me um and then this fall, I gave it to a friend of mine. He was like, oh, man, you have to do something with this manuscript. This is like, this has to be out there. And so then when I got in touch with Mike Bennett and he started talking about Patreon, he really convinced me that that was the way to do it. And, you know, you make the point about me doing the audio narration. It's always really touched. It's always really excited me to do the audio narration for my books um, to make that connection with listeners and to just, you know, to put the stuff out there in a way that's accessible like that. Like I gotta say, you know, having a publisher put your books in bookstores, even sell a big chunk of copies of your books. I've never gotten the feedback from people that I've gotten through podcasting and, and, you know, having people hear my words in their ears and, um, you know, hearing then from those people on, on various social media, um, through Facebook, through email and, and all those things. And, you know, that, I gotta say, that's been one of the highlights of this writing career. Yeah. And, and, and I see that you're the, the, uh, well, Patreon, Patreon, however, potato, potato. Um, yeah, I see that you're now on there and I, I gotta say, yeah, the interaction is great and, and everything, but it isn't, isn't that $1, even with that $1 that comes in, it's like, oh, see, he likes it enough one dollar thanks exactly you know? well that was the funny thing was that like when i first started podcasting jack wakes up i part of the way through that first 20 episodes i ended up getting my laptop stolen and that really sucked and i had to take a week off and all this stuff and it was like i asked people to chip in a dollar at that point and i didn't you know, it wasn't a huge amount of money that I raised, but just like getting these dollars from all these people that I didn't know. And this was really early in podcasting for me, just getting some sort of, um, just getting help from people that I didn't know at all who liked the story and wanted to support, you know, that was great. And now, you know, it's ironic to me and kind of crazy that it's, you know, 10 years later. Yeah. You know, the, the, the user, the later. user supported model, this value for value has really grown on me. Cause I mean, I'm, I'm from the generation that not only, well, I didn't personally build the pirate bay, but you know, I may have contributed to it's like, you know, viewer count at one point, but I, I'm, I've, I'm since reformed and I, 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 there's many, uh, products, podcasts. I mean, I've, I've donated at least, you know, thousand dollars to some of my favorite podcasts. Um, wow. and, and it's just a, a way of connecting. And, and I, I see it now. It's like, thank you for not, you know, filling your product with commercials or, you know, forcing me to, to pay for it and, and just saying, Hey, if you like it, give me a few bucks. And, and, and I just, I just see it, uh, like, like, uh, no, uh, the no sleep podcast, which, uh, uh, David Cummings, uh, put together and, and I think they're in their ninth season now. And, and it was one of those where I just said, oh, I sure I'd love to pay a couple bucks a month and be able to, you know listen to some bonus episodes 
and support what they do. And it, it gave me great satisfaction to hear at one point where he said that, uh, you know, I, I'm no longer, I've quit my day job. I'm, I'm yeah. gonna, there's going to be a no sleep podcast every week now because I've got all week to work on it. And I was like, that's great. That's awesome. I'll send you a few more dollars. <laughs> you know, please. Are they on Patreon? Uh, no, I think he, he does it directly. They, they, they've got all these geniuses to set up all their website stuff, but I mean, Patreon is just so convenient and I mean, they're fair. I mean, they don't take like 60% like Amazon does, you know? Right. And what is it? A couple, no, I mean, couple percent, I mean, maybe that, 1%. But when I first started publishing, Amazon was the best game in town. I mean, I was getting like less than, I mean, my first publishing contract, and this is still the way in New York, is you get less than 10% on um, paperbacks. Yeah, that's the thing. A lot of people complain about Amazon, but you know, they, they take, yeah, like they, they take, it's uh, compared to other publishers. It's actually pretty fair giving you 40% and keeping 60. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's all crazy. Just all of this, the more you look at the model and the, the business and finances of it, it's just an insane game. And so, yeah. you know, I've just felt like for the last year or so that I really wanted to take things in a different direction. And so for me, it feels like the answer there is going back to the audio, um, remastering all the podcasts so that they sound better and they are up to 2017 audio standards and then you know releasing those on patreon but also releasing those through the audible store um and itunes and and amazon and all of those i own the right so i yeah. just need to remaster the audio that i have and then i can distribute those again yeah, just for some of our author listeners, I mean, it's not, you can't just plop one big file on Audible. There are things you got to do. It's got to be in certain, you know, format, uh, broken up certain ways. And, uh, you know, the, yeah. there's a few hoops you got to jump through and lots of papers to sign. But, uh, yeah, I would, uh, that'd be great to see Jack Palms uh, all over the Audibles. I've had Jack Wakes Up on there for a while. And I, you know, that's actually my podcast recording. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically the work that I did the first time around was just break it up into chapters. Cause you know, originally I was releasing it as podcast episodes, which were probably around three chapters each episode. Right. And so you have to have each chapter as one file. So I did that and, um, now I'm getting ready to do that within broad daylight. I have them all broken up. I'm mastering those. I'm remastering, uh, Jack wakes up. And that's one where, like, the main character of In Broad Daylight is a woman. And so it's a little weird for me to be doing the narration there. But, you know, I think it comes down to just saying in the introduction, like, this is how I originally recorded it as a podcast. This is the pr- the concept. The character is a woman. And, you know, once people just get into it and start listening to the story... I think they're fine with it. No one had any complaints when it was a podcast. So no, I, I, think I, I certainly okay. had, I had no complaints. That's for sure. <laughs> you listen to in broad daylight too. I, I've listened to all of them. Well, except the one that's not out yet. Whoa. That's awesome. I love Jack Palms, man. <laughs> I, awesome. I, I can't wait for you to sign the contract with Netflix. <laughs> it's so funny. I mean, it's like at one point the, when the book first came out from Random House, these people in LA were like going around to like HBO and stuff and like doing meetings. And I was to like sell Jack Wakes Up, the TV show. And I was like, just, I just want to come to the meeting. Like, I promise I won't say anything. I just want to fly <laughs> down 
go to HBO offices and just like tag along, please. And it turned, you know, somehow I wasn't able to get into that, but I think uh, I don't, I don't think anyway. you want to be there. There's like blood sacrifices involved and things you don't want to witness. I want it, whatever it was I wanted to be. I just wanted to like walk in the door with them and like see any part of what goes on there. Yeah. All the that would be suits. awesome. <laughs> yeah, it would be awesome. I'd love to see Jack Palms on uh, Prime or on Netflix. I know. I love the idea of writing for TV as well, but the more I look into that, the more it seems like you really have to live in LA. Who, who would you cast as Jack that. Palms? Oh, boy. Uh, sorry for springing on you. <laughs> this well, was, we this used to have the... this conversation back, you know, 10 years ago, and, and it, you know, the actors that it was, was, the actors that I was thinking of then probably wouldn't do it now because they're older and they don't have the right look. I don't, yeah, at this point, I don't have any idea. It, I think the best way to do it would be to get a total unknown, someone who hasn't been in a lot of stuff, and then, like, just make him out to be the guy who actually did shake him down. Yeah. And then at some point, you could actually shoot a crazy, like, Robert Rodriguez machete style, like, shake him down and roll that out into some sort of grindhouse format or something. Now, now, Seth, where can folks find the Maltese Jordans? Well, not the actual shoes, because you know, don't give that away. But uh, where can they find? No, they can't get the shoes. They just—I <laughs> started collecting a whole bunch of Jordans uh, when I was writing this. I well, not a whole bunch, but I started buying some Jordans, and this has been very exciting for me because I—I could never afford them when I was a kid, and there was this whole thing of like the rational people that surround me in my life think that you're crazy if you have more than like two pairs of ready to go sneakers at any given time. Right. And uh, so I just blew that apart in the last couple of years and I, I've really enjoyed it. Well, you can write it off as research now, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And then, so then it's like basically just research. But even with that, there's a point where my conscience is saying like, you can't write this one off too. <laughs> it's crazy, but they can find my stuff at patreon.com slash Seth Harwood. That's P A T R E O N. And I'm actually looking at the page now. And on the front page, if you go to it, there's a video where I explain all my stuff. And in the back of the video, you can see a good, a good set of my Jordan's collection on the shelves in the background behind me. These are some of the ones that I've purchased lately. Very exciting to me. Just getting my hands on these old time Jordans. When I first started writing the book, I thought that the only way to buy these Jordans, which were released in 96, was to like buy ones that were released in 96 and basically no one could wear them or anything. And now, you know, all of the original colorways and new colorways are constantly being re-released. You know, like you can only get maybe this particular pair that you might want once every three to four years. So people will like wait and then go crazy after them. Right. Um, but you can get them. And so there's one particular pair of, of 11s that I don't have that hasn't been released since I started collecting. And I do feel like I need to get those when they come out. I, th I think you got to sign some of these and put them up on Patreon for uh, oh my for God. donation. That would be insane. <laughs> An official jackpot. Uh, I mean, so my shoe size is size 14, which is crazy. 
I could probably fit both of my feet into one. You probably could. There you go. Front to back. Nice. <laughs> I wonder. Yeah. I mean, that's a crazy idea. What if I sold Jordans on Patreon signed by me in somebody's size? Like you contribute a gigantic amount of money. Yeah. And I get you these Jordans and sign them. Yeah. It's amazing. Right now, Jerry Scullion is working on a mock-up uh Maltese Jordan's cover where he's actually like putting the jewels on this particular pair and we're working on it together. We're going back and forth and I nice. haven't released it yet because I feel like it's got to be just right and, and we haven't really nailed it. But um, we're working on this cover mock-up for the Maltese Jordans. We're going to bring that into the fold and then while I'm releasing the episodes, I'm just going to put like different pictures of Jordans that I really love or Jordans that come up in the episode in episode one there's a reference to this particular pair and if you go to the patreon page for that post you'll see a picture of them I love that idea that's great of, of different Jordans in every album art <laughs> there's so many good ones that I love and so yeah some of them I wear on my feet and some of them I just put on the shelf yeah, never, never. It's kind to of like see a car. A, it's yeah. like as soon as you drive it off the lot, the value goes down by yeah. a huge amount. <laughs> Absolutely. And so there's some where I'm like, I know I bought this, but I could still sell it for this much. And then like as soon as you start wearing it, you can't really sell yeah. it. Yeah, it's like it's like you know whenever you see a kid, uh, you know, with really nice Jordans, and and Michael Jordan's actually signing them. I think, I think he usually asks, are you sure? Because they're not going to be worth anything unless you can prove that I signed them, you know? Really? It's basically defacing of the shoe, right? I mean, you can't just walk into a, uh, you know, a, a pawn shop and say, hey, these were signed by Michael Jordan. They're just going to look at you and say, why would you ruin these shoes with Sharpie? You know? <laughs> unless you can prove the kitsch value, right? I don't know anyone that has access to Michael Jordan on any level. I doubt it. So if, <laughs> I don't, like, I, I don't could know get a pair of shoes and, yeah, I mean... Wow. Just being able to ask Michael Jordan to sign your shoes, that would be pretty amazing. That'd be great. Well, Mike I just read a biography by Phil Knight, the guy who started Nike. Okay. And he said that uh, he slept over at Jordan's house in Chicago once when Jordan was playing with the Bulls. And he picked up the phone in the middle of the night to call someone. And there was a person on the phone that was room service at his house. Nice. <laughs> he picked up the phone it's room service at jordan's house that's awesome so you could like probably get like a grilled cheese to your room yeah whatever you want whatever you want man <laughs> grilled cheese hot and cold running anything yeah amazing it's always a pleasure seth so folks check out patreon.com slash seth harwood we'll put a link in the show notes looking forward to the latest jack palms you can check out uh if you go to that patreon page you'll find all kinds of stuff all the different uh novels and uh, actually collections of short stories as well that uh seth has done uh where are you are you on the tweeters seth i am on the tweeters i'm at twitter i'm at seth harwood i'm facebook.com slash seth harwood you know all of those places but basically you know, I have stuff at my website, sethharwood.com, but I'm funneling everything now to the Patreon page and just kicking out new episodes. One of the things about podcasting now is in the old days, we would just do every week for as long as we could until we were ready to keel over and die. Right. And now it seems like there's more of a, 
a relaxed pace or like a, a realistic pace. Yeah. So I'm I'm gearing up to do like one or two episodes a month at this point. Awesome. Awesome. You know, yeah, and, and you know, and as the, the the you know the donations come in, uh, it, it is it is nice to wake up one day, or you even like uh, with us, even if like you know, fifty people signed up for audibletrial.com slash book guys, you know, and there's some money in the kitty. It's like, you know, we're gonna do an extra episode this week, you know, and then there's times where we just don't do an episode for the whole month. But that is also, you know, the joy of podcasting that we do have a flexible schedule, right? I mean, our shows can be two hours long or 10 minutes long, or they can come out once a week or twice a day. But uh, I hope to see Jack Palms uh, coming out steady, bud. Yeah, we got it. We, uh, you know, the episodes are going to be coming, like I said, one to two a month. And, and again, it's like I look at Mike Bennett, like, you know, I just, he he always was the guy who was, into the podcasting not looking for the book deal and he was just putting them out when he could and now he's doing it full-time he quit his day job he's doing great on patreon and and still it's like you know he'll do an episode or two a month and if he can't get to it he doesn't get to it he apologizes and says i'll get it to you next time and and you know i think sustainability is is a huge thing for for any endeavor now that i'm a bit older i can see that more clearly so that's what I'm bringing to the Patreon this time around. All right. Check it out. Patreon.com slash Seth Harwood. Uh, Seth, stick around while I say goodbye to the nice folks at home. So I want to talk to you about this this machine I have in my basement. Uh-oh. <laughs> Before we go, I want to say thank you to everyone that joined us on the show today. Susan I. Weinstein, Paradise Gardens, out now. Seth Harwood, of course, talking about the new Jack Palms series book coming soon to your earballs. And uh, Craig Damlin for joining us as well. And uh, check out Short Story Machine on iTunes. Uh, There's a little project I'm working on on the side uh, about this little machine that I have in the basement that uh, seems to be uh, creating a lot of uh, audio drama style stories that you might want to listen to at night. And uh, don't forget, we've got ministryofpodcast.com that will be back up soon uh, with a whole lot of new podcasts there. Uh, if you are the owner and operator of an independent podcast that you think would fit with our little community, uh, again, no corporate owned uh, podcasts need apply. Independence only. Uh, give us a shout at newsroom at me.com and we'll uh, see about adding you to the list. Cheers. See you next week, folks. Oh, and uh, don't forget to check out audibletrial.com slash book guys. You can try Audible for free, get a free book, and help support the show. Stay tuned, book readers and book listeners. Book Guys Show will return next week. Same book time, same book channel.